Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. We are glad that you're here. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about something that happened. Um, this was, I don't know, four or five days ago or something like that. Um, but a woman named Ayan Hersia Lee um, recently announced that she is converting or she has converted to Christianity. And I thought this was actually kind of fascinating because um, I've I've heard Ayan's um, testimony a little bit. She grew up um, in a Muslim nation, and she grew up Muslim. She was part of the Muslim Brotherhood for a while, and then um, she came to the West. She um, converted to atheism, and then she's basically become known for being outspoken against Islam, sp- specifically radical Islam. Right, um, and um, I've heard her speak, you know, on that topic a number of times. Um, but as I said, I, I recently saw that she'd converted to Christianity, and she wrote an article about it, and it's published um, on the Free Press. Um, I think it's the fp.com if you want to check it out. Um, but that is the website that is run by Barry Weiss. I shared a clip from her um, in one of my previous episodes not too long ago. Um, Barry Weiss is a former New York Times reporter, Jewish. Um, and anyways, I thought the article was really interesting that Ayan Hersia Lee wrote, um, when she talks about converting to Christianity and why she did it. And, you know, what's, what's interesting about her conversion is that there's no real, um, there's no real explanation about, oh, I, you know, I got convicted of my sins. I I became convinced that Jesus, you know, um, was the true Messiah and Savior of the world, and I needed forgiveness. There's almost none of that in her conversion story, okay? Um, now, to be clear, I don't know if that's necessarily a, a good thing. Um, it, to me, it, it's it's a much stronger evidence of conversion if there's a real conviction of sin, right? A real revelation of Jesus as Lord, right? Um, you don't really hear that, at least not in the article of the testimony that she wrote, okay? Um, what she wrote about um, was really interesting. It was much more um, big picture, her looking at what's happening in the world today and being convinced that Christianity was the answer to that. And I thought that's really fascinating because this, I think, is a point that many people in the church and many leaders in the church really miss. And so I want to I want to go into it a little bit today to talk about it because I think it's part of a larger need in the body of Christ, okay? And so I'm just going to quote some portions of her article here. Um, this is what she says. She says, quote, So what changed? Why do I call myself a Christian now? Part of the answer is global. Western civilization is under threat from three different but related forces. The resurgence of great power authoritarianism and expansionism in the forms of the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin, Putin's Russia. The rise of global Islamism, which threatens to mobilize a vast population against the West. And the viral spread of woke ideology, which is eating into the moral fiber of the next generation. Okay, so let me pause there. So she identifies these three kind of worldwide um, encroachments against traditional Western civilization, something like that. And um, 
So number one, she sees these authoritarian governments, specifically in China and Russia, right? And they're ascending on the world stage. And then she sees number two, Islamism in the Middle East. You see, like, there is this, you know, huge reservoir of people, 1.6 billion Muslims, right, is what, you know, some estimates put it at. And they have been too divided and poor to really pose a huge threat, you know, really since the fall of the Ottoman Empire, okay? Um, but it's rising. She can see, like, it, it rising, especially when we look at Europe. We can see, like, the encroachment of Islam, Islamic values. And, and specifically, when she talks about Islamism, she's really talking about the encroachment of radical Islam, okay? Um, and then the third attack against Western culture is what's happening within Western culture, which is this woke ideology, okay? And so that, she says, is eating into the moral fiber of the next generation. This is fascinating. And then she goes on the article to talk about how kind of secular Westernism is not able to effectively fight these forces, right? Like we're running out of money. We don't have enough money to pay for the wars that are required, right? When we look at, for example, Ukraine. Ukraine, us in the United States supporting Ukraine would be an example of us trying to resist the, you know, Putin's authoritarian expansion, right? And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to give money to the Ukrainians to fight that war. It's kind of like, you know, extension of the Cold War, right? Where we were supporting, you know, all these nations. I mean, in this case, we're not sending troops on the ground like we did in Vietnam and Korea, but we're still supporting them um, monetarily and in, in public relations where we're trying to do PR for them, all this kind of stuff. So, but we don't have enough. Like we're out of we're out of money. We're going deep, deeper and deeper in debt, right? And she talks about how Western secularism is really unable to fight effectively against these cultural advancements. Okay, and she talks about this a little explicitly. This is really interesting. She says, "Quote, but we can't fight off these formidable forces unless we can answer the question: What is it that unites us?" The response that God is dead seems insufficient. So too does the attempt to find solace in the rules-based liberal international order. The only credible answer, I believe, lies in our desire to uphold the legacy of the Judeo-Christian tradition. That legacy consists of an elaborate set of ideas and institutions designed to safeguard human life, freedom, and dignity from the nation, state, and the rule of law to the institutions of science, health, and learning, as Tom Holland has shown in his marvelous book Dominion, all sorts of apparently secular freedoms on the market, of conscious, and of the press find their roots in Christianity. So I've come to realize that Russell and my atheist friends failed to see the wood for the trees. The wood is the civilization built on the Judeo-Christian tradition. It is the story of the West, warts and all. Russell's critique of those contradictions in Christian doctrine is serious, but it's also too narrow in scope. <clears throat> so, you know, what she's essentially saying here is that, you know, it's a point that I think many conservative thinkers have made. Ben Shapiro has made this point, I think, many times listening to him over the years. I believe Jordan Peterson has made this point. But it's this idea that current atheists, you know, Western people that do not believe in God, something like 90 to 95 percent of the, their morality really exists atop a Judeo-Christian foundation, right? So if you were to ask somebody like Sam Harris, who's a you know prominent atheist, you know, do you think this is wrong? Do you think this is wrong? Something like 90, 90 to 95 percent of his morals would would pretty much agree with biblical morals, right? Something like that. And that's because he has, you know, he has 
subsumed, he's adopted all of those morals in his cultural upbringing, okay? And then what he's done in his, you know, adulthood is just tweaks tweak some of them. Say, well, I, I don't really like that whole, you know, sleeping before marriage is sin thing. So I'm going to tweak that, you know, so he's, he's tweaking on the, the foundation of a Christian moral foundation. And, um, and that's what she's pointing out, right? She's pointing out, Ion, is that all of these values that we take for granted in Western society, such as, for example, the idea that, you know, all people are created in the image of God and are therefore valuable, right? This is a deeply held Christian, Judeo-Christian belief that is really taken for granted in the West. And, um, I, you know, I've mentioned Tom Holland in the past. I would recommend you check out some of his stuff. He's got a number of interviews on YouTube, but he's a historian, not the uh, Spider-Man actor. <laughs> Okay. Um, this is Tom Holland, the historian, but he's a Roman historian who um, talks about how, it, as he studied the Roman Empire, he's like, how did we get from, from Rome's culture to Western culture that we have today? Like how, how did, and, and he sees the evolution of Western culture, and he would say that it's all because of Christianity. Like Christianity radically transformed western culture from the culture of rome okay and um one example i remember that he gives of that is this idea of of the cross he talks about how in in roman culture rome was all about glory right it was all about glory humiliating your enemies and the cross really flipped that value system upside down because what you have in the cross is you have a defeated foe you have you know a would-be traitor against rome and he's humiliated right he's crucified pretty much naked on a cross which the the purpose of a crucifixion in the roman empire was really to humiliate somebody right they're they're you know they're nailed or tied up to this you know to this cross and they're they're slowly dying um, but they're a spectacle. Like everybody can look and see. This is what happens to the enemies of Rome, and and they're slowly dying. Obviously, they're 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 miserable, and um, they're starving to death. They're being you know sometimes eaten by birds and things like this. Right? Like it's just such a gruesome and public way to die. But the story of the crucifixion completely reverses the plot. Right? Instead of this traitor who is humiliated and defeated by the might of Rome, what happens is through his humility and willingness to sacrifice himself for all, he is made the, the king of kings and the lord of lords, and he deserves to rule and reign, you know, um, from heavens by heaven's standard, right? So it, it completely upends the value system of Rome. And it was the, the story of the cross that caught on in Roman culture, and all of a sudden, these Christians in Rome are, are taking care of the poor and caring for them because they believe that all men are created in the image of God, and we've been called to love our neighbor. Right? These values that were not Roman values, okay? Um, but through Christianity, it transformed the culture, and that's really where we are today. Right? We still rely heavily on these biblical values, and that's Tom Holland's point. Okay, Tom's Tom Holland's point is that it, it's Christianity. the The West is the product of Christianity, which obviously I would one hundred percent agree with. Um, and like I said, many people like Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson, and some of the others have been making this point for a while now that you know. It, it, 
what happens is when you remove the Bible or when you remove Christian faith from the equation and you try to keep that same moral code, the problem is there's no reason to keep the same moral code, right? If there is no God, all morality becomes relative, right? From an atheist perspective, you can't say that murdering somebody or raping somebody is morally wrong. Really, the only argument that you can make is that it's, you know, it's, it's morally unpopular right now. You know, but ultimately, you have to say that morality is a type of social construct, right? That we agree, we as humans agree what's right or wrong right now, and that can change over time. Okay, and so it, there is no foundation for morality from an atheist perspective. Okay, and also, you know, where Hassan Ali is is coming from here is she's saying why is Western culture worth defending? from an atheistic perspective? And the answer is, it's not really. And that is, you know, that is really what we're battling with right now in the West. Okay, we're battling with a why should we defend Western culture? And, you know, the the woke attack against the West is really a homegrown version of Marxism. And, um, you know, if you're familiar with the evolution of Marxist thought, what happened, you know, in the late 20th century and into the 21st century is that Marxist ideology got moved from being, you know, primarily about its old, like, you know, worker versus owner. You know, that's the classic Marxist formula. It really got moved from that to critical theory, right, which is this idea that we're going to find the bad things in the in the culture today because it's it's all because of systemic power and oppression so if we point out all the bad things it'll erode that that base of authority that the current prevailing you know powerful groups have okay and so marxist thought today is not really taught in classic you know owner versus worker terms like like karl marx himself thought in okay it's really taught today in you know, how can we battle against oppression everywhere it exists, right? So in feminist studies, which is a, a form of critical theory, right, we're, we're, our analysis is that men have oppressed women, and now we're going to try to point out all the the wrongs of that oppression and point to it as much as we can. And what that does is it under it undermines confidence in the system, all right? And this is why today you have so many young people and they're so upset. It's not obviously just young people, but generally speaking, the younger you are, the more upset you are about our system. You feel like it's it's oppressive. You feel like it's unfair. You feel like it 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 is discriminatory. All these types of things. And and again, there's a now a dozen different angles that you might see that oppression coming from. Right? You you would say, well, males oppress females, and that's you know more feminist studies you know, the subgenre of critical theory. Or you might go whites oppress blacks, and that would be critical race theory. Or you might be like, you know, um, Europeans oppress, you know, other minorities, and that more might be more ethnic studies or something like that, right? Or again, straights oppress gays, right? And it just goes down the line. And so you look and you see all of these forms of oppression because you've been trained to see it through all this woke stuff. And what happens, you, you're like, yeah, why should we keep Western culture? What's so much better about Western culture, right? And now you have all these young people in America, and they hate the West, right? They see the West as, like, the greatest oppressors 
in the world. And, you know, even though they live in it and even though they enjoy all the benefits of being in the West, they're, they're, they're not thankful for it. They're filled with rage and anger and, and offense and all of these things, right? And that's what Hassan Ali is talking about. Like, where we've come to, you know, if we embrace secularism, is we come to a place where we don't value this culture that we have and we take it for granted. And she, being an outsider, she came from the Middle East, right? From Somalia and, sorry, you know, from the Muslim lands, Somalia is in, in Africa. Um, she came and now she's part of the West and she has something of an outsider's perspective where she can appreciate these things that we have. One of the things she points to in her article is um, this lecture that was given by this, athe- this atheist about why he's not a Christian and he's giving the lecture to a bunch of either Christians or former Christians. And she's talking about how that couldn't happen where she's from. That can't happen in a predominantly Muslim nation because if you're a former Muslim speaking against Islam, um, you get seriously persecuted, right? It's it's very dangerous to do that. But in the West, we take it for granted that you can criticize you know, Christianity to a bunch of Christians or to a bunch of ex-Christians. And you don't have to live in fear, right? And she's saying, she's essentially implying like we're taking this type of thing for granted and um that's the the woke attack from within and um you know she she says this i'm going to quote one last section here she says this quote in this nihilistic vacuum the challenge before us becomes civilizational we can't withstand china russia and iran if we can't explain to our populations why it matters that we do we can't fight woke ideology if we can't defend the civilization that is determined that it is determined to destroy. And we can't counter Islamism with purely secular tools to win the hearts and minds of Muslims. Here in the West, we have to offer them something more than videos on TikTok. The lesson I learned from my years with the Muslim Brotherhood was the power of a unifying story embedded in the foundational texts of Islam to attract, engage, and mobilize the Muslim masses. Unless we offer something as meaningful, I fear the erosion of our civilization will continue. Unfortunately, there is no need to look for some new age concoction of meditation and mindfulness. Christianity has it all. All right. So what she's basically saying is the answer to these three encroachments on Western society is Christianity. So really her argument, at least in this, this article, is, is one that's it, that's it's pragmatic. You know, it almost sounds like she's saying, you know, I'm not really convinced to be a Christian because I'm convinced that Jesus rose from the dead <laughs> and I'm convicted of my sin. She's saying, I see these three forces in the earth that are threatening to destroy Western culture, and I love Western culture. And what I see is that Christianity is actually the best defense of Western culture, and that's why I'm gonna, I'm part of it. Okay. Now, like I said, I, th- I think it's a very pragmatic explanation. So, I, I'm I'm not going to say whether I think she's a true Christian or not. I I don't know. <laughs> okay, I don't know. I'm sure she's only telling part of the story in this article too. Okay. Um, but what I am going to say is that I think she sees something that many, many people in the church do not see today. And really, that's what I want to focus on here. Um, The reason why she can see this, how valuable Christianity is in in our national culture, how valuable it is to the geopolitics of the world, right? She can see that Christianity is is the answer, is the antidote for these three evil forces that are threatening to destroy the West, right? 
But many Christians cannot see it. Many Christians cannot see that. And you have many Christians growing up in church today, and you know they're really struggling with their faith because they don't see a purpose in it. They don't see that grand narrative. And um, I want to say that a huge part of that is our fault as Christian leaders. Okay, a huge part of that is our fault as Christian leaders. And my thesis today is that what we have done is we have embraced so much humanism in the church that it has made the most powerful you know, force for good in our world, it has neutered it of its power in our own churches. Okay, And what I, what I mean by this is if you go to the average church on Sunday and you listen to a message, the average message is going to be how, if you follow Jesus a little bit better in this way, then you will be a happier, more joyful, more peaceful person. Something like that. Okay, I would say that's like the majority of messages that are preached. Something. And my point is that most Christians have been trained to read the Bible like that. All right? Like, hey, read this chapter of the Bible. Now, how does it, how does it speak to you? Right? And, and most Christians will say something to the effect of, oh, I realize, you know, if I, you know, just believe God and I trust him, then I won't be so anxious about, you know, my bills that are, that are due every week <laughs> or something like that. Right. And that's how we're training everybody to read the Bible. Like, how does it apply to you and to your situation? How can it give you more happiness and more peace in your life? Right. How can it help your family relationships? Right. How, how can it, how can it serve you in these ways? And, the problem is that is the primary way that churches teach the Bible, and that's the primary way that Christians read the Bible. And when you read it like that and you understand it like that, I think you miss out on really the central purpose of the Bible. Okay. Now, to be clear, I do think that these things are true in the sense that, yes, if you give thanks regularly, it will make you a happier person, all right? I definitely think that's true, all right? Um, you know, Paul talks about in Philippians 4, right? Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Um, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and supplication, present your request to God, and the peace of God that transcends understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, right? So there, I think that's true. If you rejoice continually and you give thanks and you take things to prayer and you give it to Jesus and you trust him, I think it will cause you to have less stress in your life, to feel more peace. I think that is a true thing, and I think the Bible does teach these kinds of things, okay? So I'm not trying to say that these things are completely out of order. What I'm trying to say is that I think these things are, are a side piece to the Bible, okay? They're a minor aspect of the Bible as opposed to being the main aspect of the Bible, but they're being taught as the main aspect instead of a minor aspect, okay? Meaning this, like if we recruited soldiers for war, right? We recruited soldiers, and then we took them through boot camp, you know, and we... You know, taught them lessons about, hey, when you hike, you've got to bring an extra pair of socks, right? Because sometimes your feet, they're going to really hurt. And man, 
you know, the socks, sometimes they get damp and having an extra pair of socks, boy, that's going to be amazing for you. Okay. Now, is that true? Uh, yeah. In this hypothetical <laughs> story. Yeah. Um, but it would be a shame if our soldiers at training, they got all of these little incidental pieces of information about how to make soldiering a little better, <laughs> right? How to be the happiest soldier, <laughs> right? You know, that's not the purpose, right? The purpose is not to make them the happiest soldiers they can be. Now, is being a happy soldier kind of important? Well, yeah. Yeah, it's not totally unimportant, right? Like, but if if you don't teach them why they're fighting and how to fight effectively, like that's the main thing, right? And then becoming a happy soldier, that's a small part of helping them fight effectively, right? But they need to know why they're fighting, right? Like that's that's a pretty important thing. And my contention is that's what's missing from the church right now. We're, we're teaching Christians how to be happy Christians, but for what? What's the greater purpose than happiness? And my argument here is that, that is the influence of, of humanism. That humanism has got so embedded in the church now that it's really just about happiness. That's why people go to church. They want to find out how to be a little bit happier, right? And what we've gotten away from as the church is the, is the grand narrative, right? The grand purpose, okay? You know, even... You know, even for for many Christians, you know, who are a little bit more missional, they would say, well, you know, the purpose is to save souls, right? We're to go out and we're to save souls. And I think that paradigm of the Bible is a step better than the one I just described, okay? So if we're talking about, like, you know, a very bad way to read the Bible is how can I be a happier person, <laughs> okay? That to me is a very bad way to read the Bible. Um, if we're talking about the purpose is to save souls, I would say that is a clear step better because now there's a greater purpose than my happiness. My happiness serves a greater purpose, which is to save others, okay? Um, so I think that's much better, okay? Because it does result in, in more missional living, right? We're sacrificing for this greater purpose. It's not about me and my happiness primarily, um, but me and my happiness serves a greater purpose, which is to help others to save their souls for eternity. That is a better purpose, but it's still not the best, in my opinion, okay? And the reason why I, I want to, you know, point out a flaw in that thinking is because um, it, 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 it still is too humanistic, in my opinion. All right, it still is too humanistic. And I've made this point before on the podcast. I don't think God wants to save everybody. Okay? You know, I have to explain that theologically because, you know, some people are going to think, well, what about that scripture that says he desires all to be saved, right? Um, it, it, God would like everybody to be saved if everybody would choose to put their faith in Christ, right? He would like that. But my point is God has God has other priorities. Saving humans is actually not his greatest priority, right? And if it were, I, th I would argue that many more humans would be saved, right? If, if God had a very high prior priority of saving all the humans, then I don't think Jesus would say something to the effect of, you know, broad is the road that leads to destruction and wide is the gate, right? He makes it, Jesus makes it pretty clear that a relatively few amount of humans are going to be saved. 
if it was God's priority to save humans, then it that wouldn't make sense, right? Because God is omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants, right? If he really wants to save most of the humans or all the humans, he can do that. And by the way, that's also why a lot of Christians get offended with God, right? How come God, you know, you could reveal yourself. You could, you know, I don't know, send powerful apostles and prophets or whomever to accomplish many miracles and, and, and you know, provide the evidence that so many people are crying out for, and then they, they, there would be far more people that would be saved. And I, I would argue, yes, he, I think he can do that, all right? I think he can do that, and that I think that's the cause for a lot of offense. Why would God not do that if many people were, as a result, going to go to, going to, go to hell? And my, my simple argument is that from God's perspective— that that's an acceptable cost for his greater purposes, okay? And, um, you know, funnily enough, I sound, as I'm listening to myself, I'm like, oh, I sound like a pretty good high Calvinist here. <laughs> right? Like, you know, like the high Calvinist w- would say, well, God, you know, Jesus only died for the elect, and, you know, the rest of humanity, they deserve eternal hellfire, and it's good that they're going to hell, <laughs> <laughs> something like that, right? That's actually not not my position, okay? I'm not a Calvinist. Um, what I'm trying to point out is that God does have a higher priority that I would argue that is still not that well understood in the church, okay? And, and this is a problem because it creates this huge vacuum of understanding for why the heck we're doing this thing anyway. Like, why... Why, God, do you allow all this evil? Why do you allow suffering? Why do you allow so many people to go to hell? To the degree that we're influenced with humanist thinking, all of that will sound like really evil. Like how could God allow this evil, all these bad things to happen to humans, right? And simply put, if I could put my argument in a very simple way, the simple argument is that there are beings that are more important than humans. Okay? And that's, that's what I mean when I talk about humanism. Humanism is the belief, essentially, that humans are the ultimate beings, all right? So whatever serves human interests is the most important. And my simple argument to that is I, I don't think that's what the, the scriptures tell us. I think what the scripture tells us is that humans exist on a hierarchy of importance, but there are many beings that are more important than humans, and God is concerned about them in the same way you know, for us, we, you know, if, if, I, if I step on an ant with my shoe, I don't really feel as bad as if I, you know, accidentally run over a deer. <laughs> okay? All right, this is kind of a crude analogy, but I think you guys can understand what I'm talking about, right? Like, we as humans understand that there's there's something to this idea of, of higher life forms, right? A deer it seems to be a higher life form than an ant. And when we, you know, we might kill an ant because it's somewhere we don't want it to be. <laughs> and we feel 100% justified in that, right? But a deer, or, you know, maybe to use a better example, if we're talking like a, an endangered animal, like a, I don't know, like a black-horned rhinon- rhinoceros, right? <laughs> I, I forget what animals are endangered or not, okay? But, you know, say there's there's this endangered rhinoceros, we go to great lengths to help that rhinoceros, Right? so much that we curtail human freedom, right? We say we make it illegal for humans to kill them, and we try to maintain their habitat and make sure that they have, you know, a natural food source and these types of things because 
we recognize that um, you know this life form is deserving of, of, of more care and it's more important in some ways than an ant. Now, you know, I'm sure if, if all the ants were endangered, we'd protect them too, <laughs> right? But my point is, I my point is from God's perspective, we're not that important. We are important, okay? Um, I'm not saying we're not important, but this is this is my point that most of the church is totally ignorant of the spiritual beings that the scriptures refer to all the time. All right, it talks about how humans were were made a little lower than the angels and the Elohim, um, and then there's lesser Elohim and there's greater Elohim, and we don't know how many of these beings there are. Could be, could, could there could be trillions or more? You know, like. Um, there's many of these beings, and in fact, it seems like, you know, I've made this argument before, but my understanding of the biblical narrative is that this age that we're living out is primarily a, a drama in the heavenlies, right? It's a, it's a game of thrones amongst the powers in heaven who rule over human kingdoms, okay? So we are, I think the best way to understand this biblically is we are slaves um, to these beings because they're greater beings than we are, right? And that's the argument that I think Paul makes um, in Galatians, um, in Ephesians, right? Um, Ephesians 2 talks about, you know, you lived in sin because you were under the power of the ruler of the air, right? And the implication is that you were totally unable to resist his influence. And he, his influence is what caused you to live in sin. But now, through Christ, you've been transferred to another kingdom, right? You've been set free. And and that's the argument he makes in Galatians, right? You were once slaves to the elemental forces of this world, he puts it in Galatians. And this idea that, you know, you were completely under their influential power, and you were their slaves, but through Christ you've been set free. And um, it's, it's this paradigm of war in the heavenlies that we are part of. That narrative is completely, um, you know, 90% of Christians, I would say, are, are completely ignorant of that narrative, okay? And I would argue that that's actually maybe the overriding biblical narrative, okay? Um, and my point here is that Ion Hersey Ali, who is up until, you know, five minutes ago an atheist and before that a Muslim, is recognizing some of this spiritual war that's happening, and in that context of seeing this greater war on the earth, she's recognizing that Christianity is the answer to this thing. And and she looks in history, and she sees that Christianity is responsible for creating this amazing civilization that we have, right, that differs from all the other civilizations. And my point is that most Christians, they don't see any of this. Most Christians don't see any of this. For most Christians, they've been taught to to just see a personal relationship with Jesus, try to love him and obey him more, and hopefully you get to go to heaven and try and bring as many people along with you as you can. It has nothing to do, you know, and so for many Christians, they live in totally dichotomized worlds where they have their church life, which is akin to their personal, you know, moral life. And then you've got, like, your work life, and then there's politics, and they're they're totally split, right, in a way that I think is is not healthy and it's not right. No, all these things are, are integrated. They all inform one another. And my point is that when we look at the Western Western culture, I think what we're seeing is the kingdom of God, 
All right. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that everybody lives in the West is part of the kingdom of God, but I am saying that the West is the product of brave believers through history obeying the voice of the Lord. That's why, for example, when I look at the American Revolution, I see that as being a very important um, historical event that was born of the work of God. Right? I see George Whitfield you know, in the First Great Awakening, preaching that all men are created equal, and that having a profound impact on the early colonists who then go on to launch a revolution against England, which starts a domino effect of constitutional republics all around the world, okay? So this cry for freedom that erupted out of the First Great Awakening results in this epic of world history, right? And I see the same thing in, in the Second Great Awakening, Right, you have this huge abolition movement that comes out of the Second Great Awakening that ends slavery all around the world. My point is, politics and you know the Bible are not so far removed. In fact, if we if we just read the Bible honestly, there's so much politics in there. Okay, we're talking about like you know half the Bible is is the history of Israel, and a lot of that is politics, right? Because the 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 truths that prevail in a culture directly in affect the politics. And that's why that's why I, I have something of a problem when Calvinists talk about the sovereignty of God, because in my opinion, they completely misuse that entire concept, right? It, the sovereignty of God, biblically speaking, I, I think does not primarily refer to this idea of meticulous determination that God is in heaven causing every little thing to happen, like he caused you to stub your toe this morning because in some mysterious way, that is going to glorify him in a, in a greater way. I don't think that's what the Bible is really talking about when it comes to sovereignty. Okay, when it when it comes to sovereignty, that's talking about this idea that God raises up righteous nations and he humbles wicked and proud ones. And you see that all throughout biblical history, all right? And I I believe we're to understand, you know, the template from what the Bible teaches us and from the example of Israel and its history, and we should understand that that biblical template goes on into the future, and that's today when we're talking about America and the West and the threats that are, you know, arrayed against us. This is a spiritual war that we're in. This is a spiritual war. So there's there's not a lot of light, in my perspective, between this idea of how do we, as a Western society and culture, how do we continue to propagate these values to teach the next generation, and then to spread biblical values to all the nations of the world. And I believe at the heart of that is convincing individual people to surrender their lives to Christ. Okay? But the two things are, are related. They're joined together. Okay? You, you can't really separate one from the other. Right? As though, you know, me preaching about Christ is completely separate from how we are to, you know, form our laws and how we are to understand the political realities. Now, all of these things are, are, are crisscrossed, right? They're all intricately tied together. And I would argue that's, that's exactly what it was like for Jesus, too, that Jesus spoke on controversial political subjects, um, and he, tr- he tried to um, provide biblical truth in those areas, and, and many of those controversial truths were the ones that made him super unpopular in his culture. That's how it's always worked, okay? Jeremiah was was back there in, in ancient Israel saying the most 
politically incorrect things. He was saying, we must submit to Babylon, right? He's saying, do not resist Babylon because the Lord has raised up, you know, Nebuchadnezzar. He's his, he's the Lord's servant. Can you imagine how offensive that must have sounded to your average Israelite? You're, you're telling me ba- Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who's conquering all these nations and subjecting them and making them worship his golden idol, that th- that guy is the Lord's servant and we are to surrender willingly, not fight him, and I'm not the I'm not the Lord's chosen servant. Can you imagine how offensive that was? How 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 much that that contradicted the prevailing theology of his day. And yet Jeremiah is preaching that and encouraging everyone why because he got a, a word from the Lord to tell them that. And Jeremiah was proved correct. Later on, to the following generations, he was considered a hero. But in his own day, he was considered a, a false prophet, a troublemaker. He was a traitor to the nation. All of these things. These were deeply political things. All right? Jesus preached about how we should pay our taxes to Caesar. Anybody that, that sympathized with the zealots in Jesus' day, the zealots were devoted to overthrowing Rome and seeing the Messiah come and Israel led into its golden age that God had promised them that one day you know, Israel you know, would, would have dominion over the earth, right, God's chosen people, and that, you know, the law would go forth from Zion. You know, many peoples would come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and we will learn of his ways, right? They they believed in these scriptures, and so when Jesus is saying, saying, pay your taxes to Caesar, you have to understand that's deeply offensive, right? Deeply offensive to anyone that was devoted to seeing Rome overthrown, okay? And so my, my simple point is this, that we're not to view politics and and scripture as being totally divorced. That is 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 a very humanistic perspective, and my problem is that that is the the dominant perspective in America today. Now, I will say that it is very difficult. Okay, and I think that's where many Christians lie. It's like it's not that they necessarily see it as being completely divorced. It's that it's so difficult. You know, some pastors say this. Some pastors say there should be no death penalty because it's unloving. And other pastors like me say, no, there should be a death penalty, (laughs) right? And so there's different understandings of what the scripture actually teaches, which I understand. Um, But the point is, of course the Bible informs our politics. And I I would even argue that it's actually much more healthy. You know, what Ayan Hirsi Ali talks about is when she was part of the Muslim Brotherhood, it gave her life purpose. All of a sudden, you know, as a young as a young adult, you know, I think she talked maybe as a teenager, right? But she's describing how it calls her to something greater than herself, and it's not just like a spur of the moment thing. This is this is an, an age old battle that they've been waging since the times of the Prophet Muhammad, right? For over a thousand years, they've been battling, and they're destined to overcome, and soon the whole world will follow Sharia law, okay? Like, she, she's now part of a, a greater meta-narrative, a greater story, and her life takes on a greater purpose. And what she's saying is that Christianity has that too. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, yes, yes, it does, all right? Christianity has that too. It has a meta-story. This gospel shall go forth to all nations, and then the end will come, right? This story is about how we are not just 
preaching the gospel to individual people, but we are battling against the powers that rule over these spiritual over these places, right, over these regions, over these nations, and that's what Ion Hercelia is picking up on. There are these three principalities, to put it in other language, that are threatening Western culture, right? And she's recognized we're at war with them, and Christianity is the answer. Christianity is what provides us with the historical narrative. Christianity is what provides us with a bedrock of, of morality, and righteousness. Christianity is what gives us an eschatological, a future hope that will surely come to pass, right? A hope that will not be disappointed. Christianity is what provides all of that. But you know what she doesn't talk about? She doesn't even talk about in the story about how Christianity will make you a happier person. She doesn't even talk about that, right? And my point is that that is like 90% of what I hear in, you know, Christian preaching and teaching. And... I want to be, okay, that's that's too high. Okay, it's less than 90%. But my point is there's way too much of that. And we have to, as church leaders, call our people to a grand narrative and a grand story that's not so much about them being happy as them giving their lives for a purpose that's greater than they are. Okay? And this is, you know, this is where I have to give, you know, the Calvinists some credit here. Because it does seem to be more the non-Calvinistic churches that tend to fall into you know the, the prosperity gospel stuff that tend to fall into God has a plan for you and you know it's to it's to make you have a fulfilled meaningful life and you know that you'll be you'll be the engineer that you've always dreamed of being and have the two point three kids in the house and you know to be clear no very few preachers put it as as baldly as that okay but my point is this no what the scripture actually calls us to is to lay down our lives to take up our crosses to lay down our lives to serve our lord who is at war with these other powers in the earth right that is the meta narrative okay that's the purpose and it's a call to suffer and to die for the sake of his kingdom, to put his kingdom first, right? And then we will be rewarded on the day of judgment, right? That is the meta narrative, okay? And that is really what we're called into. And that's why when I look at history, I see the effects of the church, right? I see how brave men and women of God sacrificed their lives to be true to what God called them to do that wasn't about them becoming happier in and of themselves. It was about them serving a greater purpose of what he was trying to accomplish in the earth in their generation, right? And that's what I would ask today. What is God doing in our generation? And what I've tried to point to is here in America, I believe we are to actively oppose this Marxist spirit. Okay, we are to act, we're at war with this Marxist ideology, right? Because behind the ideology are these spiritual powers that are using the ideology to manipulate people into rebelling against the commands of God, all right? Obeying the commands of God is what got us to this place of great blessing and prosperity and power and authority. But through rebelling against it, this generation and the generation before it are departing from the ways of God. So, of course, the Lord will withdraw his blessing. This is something that every Christian should have a deep conviction about because this is why we're fighting. This is why we're fighting, and we should have tons of historical data to back up these beliefs, right? 
when Germany, before Germany was the most Christian nation, was the most devoted to the faith, but when they started to abandon the faith after God had blessed them, united their country, blessed them with power and authority and all these things, and they started to depart from that, and the Lord gave them over to their sin. This is what he's talking about. This is what Romans 1 is about. It's about people who know God, who should know God, but they do not consider the knowledge of God valuable enough to be held on to. And they started to worship created things, so God gave them over to their sinful desires. That didn't just happen historically. That happens to civilizations and nations today. It's, an, it's literally happening to our nation and our generation. Our generation it does not consider the knowledge of God valuable enough to be held on to. And so God is giving us over to our sinful desires, right? And that's why we Christians are in a war. We are in a spiritual war against this thing, all right? We're battling the woke forces in our nation. And to be clear, it's not just wokeism, but wokeism is the most potent of these ideologies today in our nation, okay? It's a form of, of humanism that is extremely potent today, all right? We're battling this thing. And we're fighting it. So that's when I look when I when I look at you know the, the, the you know Jordan Peterson or something like that, he's doing a, an, an extremely effective job at balance. That's why I look at, at at President Trump. He's doing an extremely effective job. Okay. Neither of them were would be what I would call a Christian. You know, Jordan Peterson may be a Christian now. I don't know, um, but neither of them have been really Christians in my, from my perspective. But they're serving these purposes without even really understanding it because they can discern something that many Christians cannot discern. And I, again, I would argue it's because of the way we're being taught to read Scripture and understand Scripture. Okay? There's a reason why so many of our seminaries have gone so woke and so liberal because they've already been consumed by humanistic philosophy, right? Humanistic understanding, humanistic readings of Scripture. All right. No, get rid of all of that. God is not after making you the happiest Christian on the planet. He's not trying to save everybody. I know that, again, that's the, the next tier. It's, it's better. It's better. But no, God is not a beggar. God is not, not up in heaven saying, oh man, I hope Mary Jane will believe in me because I love her so much. I think about her every day. I can't stop thinking about Mary Jane. No, God is not a beggar king in heaven. Okay? He is He is the the king of kings and the lord of lords. All right? If, if you don't bow your knee to him, he's not losing sleep over it, okay? Yes, he, he loves you, but th- this is this is the, the test of nations that we're in. The nations are being tested, all right? The nations are being tested. Will they pass down the knowledge of God? Right, God, in his grace, is sending revivals and outpourings of the Spirit to many nations in different periods of history. But once nations have received the revelation of God, then it becomes an issue of will, will that seed grow and continue to grow or will it wilt and will it die in america we we had a season where it was it grew so much it was so powerful and spread good to so many other nations of the world and in our generation we became you know unthankful and rebellious and all these things that's infecting our generation and so this is the story of nations. This is how it's gone. For the past 2,000 years, this has been the story, right? As the gospel has spread largely westward, okay, and continues to spread now in the east. You know, China has, you know, some scholars estimate something like 100 million Christians now in China, more Christians than in America, certainly. The gospel is spreading westward, and we've seen what happened to Europe in the last generation when they rebelled against the Lord. The Lord took back their power and authority. Now, there's still remnants, Throughout Europe, there's remnants of believers in all these nations. 
which is wonderful. Okay, um, but the question is, how long will our period of of prosperity last here in America? You know, how long will this era last? And the ironic thing is, you know, we read the Bible every, you know, every Sunday, and we read these stories about, you know, how how could these Israelites, you know, rebel against the Lord? How could you know? How could they do that after they all knew him? And the and it it's literally the story of every nation of how the children and the and the children's children forget about God. Okay, but this is the meta narrative. And look, it could be that the West would fall. I mean, and by the West, I mean the heart, the Judeo Christian foundation of the West. All right, it could be that the West falls. I don't think so. I think we're going to have another generation or two. All right. I think there will be a great revival, and this is me like guessing, right? But I think there will be another generation or two or three. Who knows? It could be, you know, it could be that our our future glory is greater than our former glory. It's possible. Okay. I don't know, but I I believe we're called to fight for it, to fight for revival, to fight against these forces that we can discern, you know. Um, we fight against ideologies, against beliefs that that battle the supremacy of Christ. Right? Anything, any ideology that fights against the supremacy of Christ, I am at war with as a Christian. Right? And and I will be judged on that basis on the day of judgment. Okay. And to do our jobs, we will have to go into places of suffering. Otherwise, if we refuse to to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. Um, you can't be an effective soldier. You cannot be. It's not possible. It's not possible, right, for you know a, a, a soldier, an American soldier, to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to go fight for America, but as soon as it gets hard, as soon as they're suffering, they'll be like, oh, this is not what I signed up for, right? No, a soldier expects to suffer, okay? You have to be a complete moron to sign up for the army and, and never expect to suffer, all right? No, if you're signing up for the military, you expect to fight, and you, you expect to some degree that it's going to be difficult. Now, it may exceed your expectations. It probably does in many cases, all right? And, and it should be the, the same in Christianity. Sometimes it's going to exceed our expectations, but that's why there's so many passages about enduring suffering in the New Testament. All throughout the New Testament, there's passages, pretty much every single book of the New Testament has sections on enduring suffering because it is central to Christianity because if you become an effective force for good in God's kingdom, almost certainly the enemy will start to attack you and there's a variety of means that the enemy uses to attack us, right? But the purpose is to, is to take us out. But we've got to have a mentality of training soldiers for Christ. That's what we're doing. We're training soldiers for Christ and, you know, as a as a leader in the church, I could say like, yeah, it's it's really hard, especially because we're, we're not on the same page with this, Right? But I have hope in this generation that the Lord is going to put us on the same page and that there's going to be a complete revamp of the church as we learn how to train effective soldiers. Because when we're talking about these, you know, this meta narrative and we're talking about these, this, you know, worldwide battle that's happening in the heavenlies, right, that manifests in these forces that Ion Hersi Ali is describing, these authoritarian governments in China and Russia, these this woke ideology. And I've I've argued in the past that I think Islam is the great looming threat. Okay, if we're talking about what what to me seems most likely to be an ultimate antichrist kingdom, Islam really fits the bill. Okay? Islam really fits the bill. And the way that I put it before is that I think humanism 
is the attack that's specifically targeted against Christian nations. Okay, and that's why, by the way, I, I've said this before. I I would I hate fighting against like religiousness. Religiousness is is to me the trickiest thing to fight. Religious pride. Okay, it's so hard to fight it. Like you know, when you go when you try and do effective ministry at like Bible colleges, it's very hard because the things you're fighting against are not you know. It's not like people are saying no. I love you know. I love premarital sex and I won't give it up. That's not generally the arguments you're going to hear at, at Bible colleges and stuff like that. At Bible colleges you hear, no, like we don't, you know, we don't pray like that because that's all just emotionalism. And then you're thrown into confusion. Like, Oh shoot, is it emotionalism? And they're going to throw Bible passages at you. And you know, like, like fighting against that religious spirit is really tough to me. (laughs) Okay. Um, but my point is that there are certain tactics that the enemy employs against Christians, right? And those are very difficult to fight, in my opinion. Okay, they're 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 harder. <laughs> okay, I think humanism is one of the primary tactic that the enemy has used for centuries now to corrupt the church, right? To make it all about us, and we start to take pride in our own achievements and our own wealth and our power and we start to become ungrateful we start to become complainers and all these types of things and we start denying God and rebelling against his ways and questioning you know whether it makes sense to follow him all this kind of stuff this is you know historically how it's always worked against God's people this is the attack that comes all right um so humanism attacks christianity uh, but then islam i think is is perfectly suited to attack humanism and that's what Ayan Harsi Ali is pointing out in her article, that she recognizes that secular humanism will fall to Islam, right? Secular humanism can't handle, and that's what we're seeing in Europe right now, secular humanism does not know how to effectively fight Islam because Islam has a solid moral code, right? It has a sol- solid moral code. It's not thrown off by humanistic you know, arguments, right? Are you sure that's right, right? Shouldn't we just love people? No, 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 no. Islam is, you know, an Islamist is is not affected by those arguments and by those discouragements, right? It's much more the other the other way around, okay? Because in humanistic places, there's no purpose, right? It's just it's just hedonism. You just do what you, makes you happy and do what you want to do, and it leads itself to this nihilism, this loss of purpose, this loss of ultimate meaning, right? Nothing's greater than yourself, and it's it's ultimately void and empty, and you know, Islam steps in with a much more militaristic perspective and a, and a grand call for, you know, worldwide jihad. And, and this can be compelling. And if, and if it's not compelling, then it doesn't matter because you don't have a unified force against it. So you just get squished by it. And and that's what we're seeing in Europe. Even these tiny minorities of Muslims in Europe are exerting incredible influence, right, throughout the European states. And, and, and finally, this is spreading to America too now, right? Where in America... You've got this, you know, in America, you've got these huge marches for Hamas, and right, and, and these huge popular support for Hamas in a way that I, I never would have expected to see, um, really, for decades. But it's already here, and um, we could tell that this thing is, is going to continue to get stronger. Now, the question is, what's going to be the backlash? I think there is ultimately going to be a great backlash to Islamism in America, but it, let me tell you, it's, it's not going to be this like super, um, 
tolerant left type of thing. The tolerant left thing is, is what allows that that Islamic stuff in. Um, I'm afraid that America is going to become extremely, um, you know, totalitarian. All right, that's that's right. Because when when it just gets out of control, when chaos and lawlessness gets way too out of control, people demand it be put to a stop, even if it's a totalitarian force. Okay, and that's where I'm afraid this is going to go because we're not shutting the door to the stuff now, and we're allowing it to get footholds. I think there's going to be, um, I think there's going to be major pain from it. I think there's going to be um, major attacks. I think there's going to be, you know, um, I hope not. Okay, but I think we're going to see in- increased persecution of Jews. All right, things like that. Um, I'm afraid that that is all going to happen and it's going to result in a more, you know, totalitarian type of thing. Now that could be right or left. You know, the the old right-left stuff doesn't even really make that much sense because if you look, you know, people would say that Nazi Germany was a far-right government and then, you know, communist Stalin was a far-left government. But the reality is, you know, when you get that far right or left, I guess it's it it's the same stuff, okay? It's just totalitarianism, <laughs> okay? And um, I am worried that that thing could could definitely overtake America because we lose our moral center. When you don't have a moral center, what happens is one side pushes so far, you know, and they become extreme, and then there's a huge backlash against that extreme, and, and, and it goes to the opposite extreme, okay? We need a strong moral center, and unfortunately, atheism cannot offer that. Atheism has no moral center, okay? It's relying on a Christian moral center, and then it's just, you know, it just it just criticizes it. <laughs> you know, it helps erode it. That's what, ultimately, that's what atheism does, okay? It has no actual moral center itself. It can't. Your morality doesn't come from an outside source. It com- it's a social construct that you all agree on, okay? Um, but this is the battle that we're fighting, and, and I'm going to just end with this, that this is the call for Christians, Christian leaders. Let's call our people to this grand story. Let's call them to the story of history, right? Christianity, again, I would argue, is the greatest force for good in the history of the world, okay? Because it's Christ's kingdom. It's Christ's kingdom manifest in the earth, okay? I'm not saying it's Britain or America or the French government. I'm not saying any of that. No, no, no. Christ's kingdom is the is the, the, the people who have submitted to him in their hearts and are his subjects primarily in their hearts. They have their loyalties to Christ before any government of the earth, all right? Now, there were more of those people in these nations in the past couple generations, okay? But I'm not conflating, you know, these Western governments with Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom is, is a spiritual kingdom, okay? Um, it will one day become a human kingdom when Christ returns to the earth and establishes the kingdom on the earth, then that is the, the true, you know, that's the true revelation of the kingdom of God. That's when the kingdom of God comes in fullness. All right. So that way, that day will come. But in this era, the kingdom of God is within us. All right. It's the way, it's the way Jesus puts it. All right. It's a real spiritual kingdom. If we could see in the spiritual realm, there's a real spiritual boundary to that kingdom that includes some people and does not include other people. But my point is that it's not perfectly represented in any human institution or government. Okay, you can have lots of churches where, you know, a lot of the people are are belong to Christ and a bunch of people do not belong to Christ. All right? You can have many countries where a lot of people do belong to Christ and a lot of people do not belong to Christ. All right? The organizations and the institutions on the earth do not perfectly represent 
um, the spiritual rallies, just like I would argue, you know, when Ion Hercioli is picking up these three grand, um, you know, threats to the West, none of them are perfectly encapsulated by any particular, you know, organization or or alliance or anything like that, right? Yeah, communist China is an example of the type of authoritarianism, but there's a number of authoritarian governments throughout the world. China, communist China is just one of the most prominent ones, right? That is is a, the clearest threat, okay? But the idea is it's it's authoritarianism itself that is the power, all right? And that's what I mean. These are spiritual powers, they're spiritual powers, and as Christians, we have to rec- learn to recognize them for what they are and understand we're at war with them, and how do we effectively fight them, right? That's that's our job. And by the way, I should clearly make the point that despite the church being you know so ignorant about a lot of the stuff, we are still the greatest force for good in the world, okay? Like, the church in America is the reason why we have not gone full-blown atheist, full-blown totalitarian already, Okay, it's the church in America holding down the fort, okay? And a lot of that is just through trusting. Right? They just trust the Lord and they're trying to obey his commands. They don't understand all the stuff, but you know, they can recognize that some of the stuff is evil and they're fighting against it even though they can't articulate exactly why. Okay, the the church is amazing. Right? The church is amazing. Like I said, I think it's the most powerful force for good in the history of the world and that includes today. It's the most powerful force for good today. So I believe in the body of Christ. I'm excited, though, for where I believe we're going because my whole paradigm, my understanding of the kingdom is that the church is going to get more and more mature as the ages progress. But one of the ways that the Lord does that is putting the church through hardships and difficulties, right? That's one of the primary ways that the church matures is through overcoming periods of hardship and trial, all right? So we should understand that, it, you know, we should not expect that, you know, Star Trek is is the vision for the future. That's the humanistic vision for the future, right? That technology just increases and our governments get so much better and we learn to share and cooperate that we eradicate war, you know, and now we're just exploring other galaxies. That's the Star Trek humanistic vision of the world. I think the scriptures pretty clearly say that that is not how this thing is going to go, all right? Um, Paul in Romans 8 talks about birth pangs, right? The creation goes through birth pangs. And the idea of birth pangs is that they're, they're violent uh, periods of great pain that come in waves, in increasing, waves of increasing intensity, okay? And I believe that is what we should understand it to look like, all right? So according to Jesus in the, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, what you have is you have the plantings of the Lord maturing in the earth, until the great harvest at the end of the age. And you have the plantings of the enemy maturing in the earth until the harvest um, at the great end of the age. So both good and evil are maturing in the earth, and, and and these birth pangs are coming in greater and greater intensity. So when we look at you know the world wars of the 20th century, I believe that was a major birth pang. And then we've since then, we've had a relative period of, of ease. Okay, Obviously, it's not totally at ease, but relatively speaking, it has been. But I think you know, the, the next battle will be worse, okay, than the world wars of the 20th century. I think that's what we should expect, okay? And we should be training believers to be able to go through difficulties, to have a theology that can handle the difficulties that are to come and to not get caught, totally caught up in just, you know, we don't, get, we don't want to get lost to the earthly arguments that are going on, right? You don't want to become a full-blown Marxist or a full-blown authoritarian 
communist, right, or a full-blown Islamicist, right? These are all, you know, uh, forces in the earth or or full-blown, I don't know, Western nationalists. I don't know what the, you know, the, you know, the bad version of that would be. But the point is, we should recognize these are spiritual forces in the earth. So our primary allegiance is to Christ and to serving his kingdom, and that helps us discern these things that are not of Christ, that are must be from other powers, and discern that we need to fight them while supporting biblical authority, right, and and all of the Christian doctrine that has been preached through the centuries. All right, it will surely come to pass. I, I always try and help younger believers to understand, look, all of this morality that we have, today that is contrary to the Bible, okay, th- this this is popular morality that comes and goes throughout human history, all right? But we have a, a structure of morality that has lasted for thousands and thousands of years, cons- especially considering if you, if, if you consider Judaism, you know, part of the Christian heritage, which, which I do, right? So we have a, a system of morality that has spanned throughout really human history, and um, we're not going anywhere. All right, we will make it through whatever moral fads come and go in our culture. All right, we will make it through it. The question is, in our generation, will we effectively fight it? Will we be able to discern the times that we live in? All right, and be able to be a voice for righteousness and a force for righteousness in the earth. All right, and that has everything to do with being able to discern what the Lord is saying today by living according to the commands given to us in Scripture and being honest with them and having a, a sincere devotion to Christ and then giving our lives to serve Him. Okay? All right. God bless. I hope that was helpful. Have a wonderful week.